Welcome to You, Me, Empathy, a safe place for leading with your heart. Hey, thanks for being here. You, Me, Empathy is the official podcast of the Feely Human Collective, a collaborative mental health community designed to empower each of us to grow our capacity for empathy, vulnerability, and emotional wayfinding. Just a friendly reminder that this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Known as just a silly boy with a feely heart. You can support the show by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts, following us on social media at Yumi Empathy and Feely Human, and joining the Feely Human Collective community at feelyhuman.co. And now your host, Known Wells. Hello, Feely Humans. Welcome to another episode of... You, me, empathy. My name is Known Wells. I am the host of this show. I'm also the founder of the Feely Human Collective, where we grow our capacity for empathy, vulnerability, and emotional curiosity. And in fact, this very upcoming Sunday, June 19th, we are doing an illustrating empathy workshop online. It's 25 bucks to join. It's something I've done before, and it's deeply wonderful uh, and beautiful. And if you haven't joined one of our empathy workshops, I highly recommend it. So if you want to go check that out, go to illustratingempathy.com or just go to feelyhuman.co, click on uh, click on the link at the top there and, uh, and I'll take you there. Hope to see you there. This is episode 228 on Grief, Love, and Dispelling Darkness with Catherine Schultz. Catherine is the staff writer, a staff writer at The New Yorker. She's a Pulitzer Prize winning writer of the really big one, a story about an earthquake that will destroy a sizable portion of the coastal northwest. Uh, Terrifying piece of writing, beautiful piece of writing. That was written in uh, 2015. We mostly talked about grief and love and uh, Catherine's new memoir, Lost and Found, which is just a stunning piece of writing. Uh, I compared it to Truman Capote's first book, uh, just meaning that Capote's first book is something for me that was like every little every sentence was a little morsel that I wanted to take home with me and, and just uh, just give give a little hug to. It was just so meaningful to me, so beautiful and rich. And uh, Catherine is just one, uh, one amazing writer, and I really enjoyed chatting with her uh, about grief and love, losing her father, finding her love in sea, uh, having a baby, um, dispelling darkness, uh, this book being as intimate a thing as she's ever written. Uh, we also talked about being runners. We talked about why comparative suffering is not useful. We talked about everything, everywhere, all at once. The movie I keep talking about because it's the best. Uh, we talked about so many things. Really, really loved this conversation. I hope you do as well. I hope you also go out and 
pick up Catherine's new book, Lost and Found. It's really wonderful. If you have a local independent bookstore, please purchase it there, or bookshop.org is a great resource. Just your local bookstore. Get it there. It's great. Um, please. Lost and Found by Catherine Schultz. That's S-C-H-U-L-Z. And before we get to the episode, uh, I guess uh, a reminder that, um, again, this coming Sunday, I'm leading a workshop. Um, it's called Illustrating Empathy. If you go to feelahuman.co, click on the Workshops tab, click on Illustrating Empathy. It's at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. It's $25 to join. It's about two hours usually, so 10 to ten to 12 Pacific Time. It's a really wonderful time. Um, I, I promise you that it's wonderful, and I hope you can join. Um, so plenty of tickets left. Hope you can join that. The other thing I wanted to mention, uh, two more things. Uh, one being that uh, just tomorrow uh, or Wednesday this week, the next episode of Movies That Make Us Feel will launch with... Uh, or will be released, uh, this one with my guest Jess Springle on Harriet the Spy. That's right, Harriet the Spy, the movie from the 90s. Um, Movies That Make Us Feel is a new spinoff podcast I'm doing only on Patreon. So it's $5 a month to join that. Uh, it's a way to support this show, this podcast, me, the work I do with Feely Human. It's 5 bucks a month. You get a bonus podcast called Movies That Make Us Feel, where a guest and I talk about movies that make us feel. And this month, we're talking about Harriet the Spy. That comes out in a couple of days. Hope you can join us. Again, five bucks a month. It's patreon.com slash feelyhuman to join that. And the last thing I'll say is uh, if you go to storied hats, so as you know, I like to wear hats. I, I sometimes wear hats. I like hats. Hats are fun. And storied hats, S-T-O-R- I-E-D, uh, storiedhats.com, uh, is a hat I like a lot. They make hats from very sustainable materials, recycled materials. Um, they, uh, they set me up with a coupon code for all of you feely humans. So if you use the code feely, F-E-E-L-Y, that's F-E-E-L-Y, you get 10% off. Uh, so if you go to storiedhats.com, use the code feely at checkout, you get 10% off. And I get a kickback. So that's an affiliate link. Full disclosure, that's an affiliate link. Never had one of those before. This is like the first like experiment in doing this, which is kind of fun and exciting. So if you like hats and if you like supporting a small business like storiedhats.com, if you like, you know, sustainable materials, check out storiedhats.com. Use the code Feely. Get 10% off. Great. Awesome. I'll make sure to include that link in the show notes. And that's it. That's that's the pitch. That's the intro to this episode. Hope you enjoy it. 228 on Grief, Love, and Dispelling Darkness with Katherine Schultz.
Welcome to You, Me, Empathy, the official podcast of the Feely Human Collective. On this show, we explore the struggles, the triumphs, the brights and the darks we face as humans trying to get by on this wondrous and overwhelming pale blue dot. The intent of You, Me, Empathy is to talk openly without judgment about our mental health, our neuroses, our shared anxieties and worries, to create a dialogue that is vulnerable and deeply human and empathetic and to share that dialogue with others to inspire emotional and cognitive collaboration and insight so we can, hand-in-hand, break down the stigma that make us feel shame and guilt for struggling, for feeling our feelings, for being feely humans. Yumi Empathy is a safe, friendly space designed to inspire the beauty in each of us. Today, I'm feeling all the feelings simultaneously because I'm human, gosh darn it, and that's just who we are. Anyways, I'm feeling all of these things because I'm here with Pulitzer Prize winner, staff writer at The New Yorker, and author of the new memoir, Lost and Found. It's Catherine Schultz. Hello, Catherine. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my goodness. I am so honored to have you. Grateful. I just finished your book this morning. Mm. Thank uh, you for that as well. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I, I want to dig into it deeply because it, it's, it's deeply profound and I just have to say, as as someone who has a literature degree, as someone who loves writing and reading myself, my partner is a, uh, a English professor. Just your the way that you put words together is so beautiful and stunning and surprising. And you know what it evoked is I I remember reading. Uh, Truman Capote's first novel, Other Voices, Other Rooms, like a decade ago. And I remember being struck by so many passages in that novel. And the same was, I had the same reaction to this book, Lost and Found. I just like, there were so many little nuggets. I'm just like, ah, that will live with me for a long time. So thank you. Oh my goodness, thank you. That's um, such a lovely and generous reaction to the book. And also the first time I think that I've been compared to Truman Capote in any capacity. <laughs> yes, well, um, he's one of my favorite writers. And uh, yeah, I mean, again, just profound. I want to dig into it. But before we do that, we always kick off the show with an emotional check-in. How are you feeling, Catherine? You know, I'm feeling pretty grand. Um, it's a beautiful late spring day. Actually, it's it's not technically late spring. Um, I'm here on the eastern shore of Maryland, and uh, it's mid-spring, but acting like late spring. It's our first truly warm day. It's um, just blue and breezy and lovely outside. And I was uh, shortly before this strolling out uh, among the tulips and daffodils with my uh, little eight-month-old daughter, uh, who always brings me joy. And it's... Um, it's really fun, you know, especially when they're under a year old, everything is a first thing. So, mm. you know, first daffodils, first tulips, first like truly spring feeling day. Uh, and it, it reconnects me to the things I find marvelous about the world, but occasionally have to be reminded. And um, so it's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm feeling grateful and content. Mm. That sounds so lovely. And I love that. And this does come off up often on the show, how kids can be these portals to, reminding us of the the awe and wonder of the world when as adults you know we can put up so much armor as we navigate the world right and kids can be this reminder to soften and listen right 
Sure. I mean, armor and obliviousness, you know, I, there's sure. no question some of it is armor, but it's also, we get busy, we get distracted, you know, we're, we're yeah. also interested in things like the contents of our cell phones and, <laughs> you know, our to-do list and tomorrow and the next day and the next month. And um, yeah, kids really take you right straight back to what's happening right now. And, and that's mm. a real gift. How's it been just overall as a mom and what, it, and what else is it like? brought up in you as a as a human you know mostly just overwhelming gratitude uh, mm. and and joy uh, i've always wanted kids and um and came to it rather late uh actually at a point that i kind of made my peace with the fact that i might um never have children or, or not in the way i expected you know there's many ways to bring children into your life and to raise them or help raise them and i was open to all of those uh but uh but this particular little baby, I, you know, watched her get born and put her on her mom's chest uh, and, and have been along for the whole ride. And um, the whole ride has been amazing, you know, um, which isn't to say there haven't also been moments that are exhausting or moments that are just like, what are we doing here? Or like, how do we also have like work lives anymore? <laughs> so, I, I don't want to diminish all the things that are challenging about parenting, but, um, but my overall feeling about it, um, because as you said earlier, it, of course, is always all the feelings, uh, but, but by far the dominant one really is just absolute delight. She's incredibly yeah. fun. Mm. I love it. I, I both grieve the fact that my partner Jessica and I don't have kids like we we were at a point we're in our early 40s now and so there was a period of time where we we had given it some serious thought and and tried for a while and it just never happened and I I think sort of moving beyond the idea of what that could have been has has been a little griefy uh right and uh so I'm grateful I'm grateful that that this little bundle of joy has has brought so much brightness into your into your world. That's wonderful. Well, we in turn are very grateful for all of her um, actual aunts, um, uncles, and cousins, and vicarious ones. So um, I, I know what you mean about the the sense of loss of all the kinds of things we foreclose in life, including obviously by having children, you foreclose certain things, um, mm. <laughs> namely almost everything about your past life. Uh, but but that's <laughs> just by way of saying that I hope that. Um, and I'm confident that alongside whatever sense of loss you have about that, oh, there's just so many ways to be involved in the lives of children. And I can tell you as a new parent, um, it's really welcome and wonderful to have people who want to be very involved in your child's life. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. I Most of my friends have kiddos and, and we love them to death. And we're, we're grandparent or uh, grand, what is it? Godparents to friends, kids and stuff like that, which is delightful. And what, what, struck me, you know, as you were saying that is this idea that we as humans kind of think about how our lives will turn out, right? So at one point, you know, I thought, oh, we'll have kids and 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 you you start sort of going in your imagination about like what that will look like, right? And then and then it doesn't turn out that way and then yeah, you have to you have to sort of deal with that. And there's a lot in life like that, right? There's a ton in life like that, where we project and we sort of go f into the future and think about, oh, what what will this be? And that's fun. That's like the imaginative work that we can do as humans, but it also can bring loss and grief and, uh, oh, didn't see that coming, you know? Mm. Yeah. yeah, for sure. I mean, on the one hand, I do think, um, I, I agree with you that those kinds of future projections are 
wonderful uh, and and fun and actually really important. You know, I think um, there's this wonderful quote by Auden about how um, humans never become anything without first pretending to be it. <laughs> I, I think that's true. I think we have to kind of imagine ourselves into the life that we want. But of course, sometimes mm. um, that doesn't happen at all. Uh, sometimes uh, in painful ways, sometimes in really delightful and surprising ways. Um, and, you know, much of this book is about um, the kinds of, very unexpected turns that life can take, you know, the things that we lose without wanting to and find without meaning to. And, and uh, those are kind of flip sides of the same coin, which is exactly just the absolute unknowability and to a large degree, uncontrollability of, of life and of our future. Mm. Yeah. So lost and found the book uh, that we mentioned earlier and, and, and this beautiful book that you wrote is, it it's broken up into three sections, right? Losing and finding, and and then the and, uh, which I love, which spoke directly to my heart as someone who talks endlessly about the importance of of the gray and the nuance and the the messy and the mushy. Um, I feel like that is the place where true connection and healing and growth happens in the world. Where in a world where there's so much binary in the world where, you know, you mentioned earlier, like doing and being productive, like capitalism, right? You know, and, and these systems that sort of want to define us or put us into boxes or what have you, when the reality, it's a lot of letting go. It's a lot of critical thinking and curiosity. And um, uh, so on that front, and maybe we can work backwards, like, what is what is that like what does your andness look like to you now like after you know now like presently like after this book came out obviously you lost your father i'm very sorry about that you found c you know uh, which is beautiful you have a child now what does the andness look like to you day in and day out now sure well, I mean, I'll go back in time first and say, right, I I lost my father and found my partner, um, not exactly at the same time, but in quick succession, actually in the other order, I found my partner and then lost my father. And uh, and so I, I thought a lot about that kind of emotional conjunction, um, because like you, I think life kind of always works that way. Sometimes it makes it really obvious as it did for me, but we're always experiencing more than one thing at once and feeling mm-hmm. more than one thing at once. Um and life is presenting us sometimes with really contradictory experiences, but sometimes just with a, a kind of chaos of experiences mm-hmm. that, that don't even necessarily have anything to do with each other, except that they're happening at the same time and we have to contend with them at the same time. Uh, and that to me is the kind of fundamental texture of, of reality. So it was interesting to get to examine it through this really focused lens of like, well, I've walked you through my thoughts about loss and I've walked you through my thoughts about discovery, but like those they actually do not exist in two separate sections in the world the way that they do in my book. So let's like now kind of spend some time in them together. Um, yeah. All of which is to say, of course, it's still with me, you know, because the whole premise of, of that section of the book is, yeah, it wasn't just that I lost my dad and found my partner and had to contend with all that at once. It's that but that's representative of, of how life functions. Um, yeah. So, you know, how how is that for me right now? Well, you know, I have a new book and I have a new baby. Um and uh, I, um, 
I'm proud of this book. You know, I it's it's deeply important to me. It's about two of the people I love most in this world. Uh, it's um, as intimate a thing as I've ever written, uh, and and yet um, I have been moved to hear total strangers respond to it um, with stories of their own life, uh, with, with, you know, the tale of their marriage of 50 years or about losing their own parent. Um, and and I'm, I'm very moved by the sense of the possibility of, of something shared across the like wildly different uh, thing that is the human mm. species. And, um, and so on the one hand, you know, I, I want to do right by this book and, uh, talk about it and share it with the world. Um, and on the other hand, all I want to do is sit at home with my baby. <laughs> uh, and uh, that's a very age old kind of and, especially for women, right? Yeah, the, yeah. the competing uh, demands on our time, the competing ambitions and hopes, the competing visions of, of what constitutes a good life. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so that is really present for me all the time right now, mm. you know, and, and there's a kind of subset of that, which is the funny um, specific nature of, of this moment that we're living through, which is, you know, on the one hand, um, a global pandemic is a horrible thing. Uh, and also I miss human beings and I love uh, indie bookstores. I love readers. I love mm. getting to go out in public and, and, uh, and talk to them and meet them. Um, on the other hand, it's an absolute gift as a new parent uh, to be able to do a lot of things uh, on online that you used to have to show up in person for. Uh, so that's another kind of and, you know, I'm um, I'm very grateful to all the people who will decide to spend their evening like staring at their laptop to, to listen to a conversation about a book. I'm in awe of all of you. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful that it means I get to spend more time, uh, you know, m- missing fewer bedtimes and, and being around more for my daughter. But yeah. but yeah, I miss, I miss stores. I miss readers. Uh, I'm doing some of that now, which is exciting, but those I think are the kind of primary components of the sort of andness of my mm. life right now. Mm. There's so much of it. Like, uh, you know, after reading that, that, section of your book there it just reminded me of how much andness there is everywhere and all the time right i last week i watched i guess it was less than a week ago i watched this movie everything everywhere all at once have you heard of it no but it's a great title (laughs) uh so do yourself kindness Catherine, and and see this movie and see it in theaters it's a independent film by the Daniels, Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert. And it's about, it's a multiverse movie. uh, And Michelle Yao is the main star in it. And it's so deeply profound uh, uh, message or, or story about, really about how we are connected, how, um, Deeply, uh, we feel all the joy and all of the sorrow simultaneously. It's about how we sometimes, and I so related to this piece, feel so overwhelmed that we go to the nothing matters place mm-hmm. and, and we start to like disassociate or we start to like disconnect. And the, the love that sort of can bind that or, or bring us back, um, it's... Like I, we had to wait 10 minutes before we leave, left the theater because I was just full face, ugly crying. Um, just a beautiful thing. Anyways, the, reading your book reminded me of this movie and it reminded me of really the work that I've been doing these past few years in trying to 
remind us that there aren't, we're not like pawns in a war as humans, nor are our emotions, right? Like these aren't oppositional forces. They are and, they are with us always. And what is hard, and I would love to hear your thoughts about this, is like the the oppositionalness of like how we face our emotions or how we um, protect ourselves from certain experiences is so understandable. Like it's such a human thing. So how do we as humans create more space for that and this to be a true thing, that and this to be a growth opportunity or a perspective bringer or a connector, right? Yeah, I think it's I think it's very hard. You know, I think many um, forces in life conspire to well, first of all, to make us uncomfortable, um, even with a single emotion. <laughs> you know, let alone with, with the prospect of contending with with very different ones. Um, yeah, or or very different experiences all at once, even though everyone has to do it, right? You know, I I feel fortunate every day. I I grieved someone, uh, my father, who I loved in a very uncomplicated way. You know, I, mm. he was a great dad and um, and a great human. And um, now that I'm a parent, I think all the time about that. You know, I, I hope I can be half the parent to my child he was to me. Mm. Um, but a lot of people don't have uncomplicated grief, right? You know, they, they uh, had very contentious relationships with with someone they lost and very hurtful or difficult ones or ones around which they have shame or guilt or anger or you name it. You know, this is an absolutely tragically, um, but but absolutely uh, common reality for, for many, many, many people. And that's a tall order, right? You know, um, and likewise with love, you know, I, I feel fortunate in that, um, I sometimes describe myself as kind of emotionally privileged. You know, life gave me every possible emotional resource to mm. um, to deal with its vicissitudes. I come mm-hmm. from an incredibly loving uh, and tender family, and a family that was open and good at communicating. Uh, and and then I went and I fell in love with someone who's who's also from a, a very different, but um, but also very happy and supportive family. And you know, even then, as I am at great pains to say in the book, you know, putting a life together with someone is a complicated thing. It always is. Of course, yeah. unless you're two different people and, and you have different feelings and thoughts and reactions and emotions and needs and you name it, you know. And yeah. and when you layer on top of that all of the kinds of things that complicate people's lives, you know, love can be absolutely as complicated as grief or more so. You know, there are mm-hmm. in the same way that that countless people are trying to figure out how to grieve someone who hurt them or disappointed them or um, you know, in in various ways, left them contending with a lot more than just sorrow. There are many, many people who love and who want to be loved, uh, for whom love is a fraught and difficult concept, mm. um, because it's been wielded against them in in painful ways or um, yeah, disguised as things that it isn't. So that's just to say that even within a simple thing like one category of experience, like grieving or falling in love, it's just it's so manifold and it's so many things at once. Um, and I think on some level, the, you know, the beginning, as with all things, is just to honor the nature of the problem, you know, to mm. not try to hide from it or, or pretend it's simpler than it is or other than it is um, and and let it be complicated. You know, it's so funny. That's a that's a lesson I've learned. Um, you know, this is going to sound kind of banal by comparison, but it's a lesson I learned over and over again as a writer. Like sometimes your job is to make things incredibly lucid for your readers. Um mm-hmm. 
but sometimes you can't solve a thing. And sometimes the reason you can't solve it is it's a little bit insolvable and, and, and your job actually is to present the complications and, mm. and be honest about those. And I feel like that's kind of life too, right? Like sometimes the job is just to be honest about the complications and, and you can't get anywhere. You can't get to the lucid part uh, until you do that. So I guess that's kind of my main feeling is that um, it is important to look clearly at, at the complications that life presents us with. And that's a lot of what I set out to do in this book, um, both within each of the first two sections within lost and within found, and then above all in, in that last section, and to try to be honest about the nature of grief and the mm. nature of falling in love, uh, and, and then the nature of just like grown up human life, which is whoops, like a lot of things are all happening at once, and 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 to try to kind of walk with readers through those very complicated landscapes and, and try to be a kind of tour guide, like point out uh, as many of the relevant features as I could. Yeah. Oh, you did splendidly. And I, I love the, the complicated, uh, the, the perspective on being complicated. And, and uh, I think what's important there is the fact that, or the lesson in there for me is, is this idea that we don't need to, have answers all the time, right? We don't need to mm -hmm. fix it all the time. So getting comfortable with the discomfort of not having the answer always is, is a piece of that. At, at least it's been for me. Um, this thing you said about, you mentioned love and grief and, and those things being bound to each other. You said in the book about something around sort of this this worry that if you stop grieving, you'll sort of lose the connection you had to this person. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Because like that's such a, um, uh, that's deeply profound. And it, uh, it, it sort of like shook me in a way that um, brought up some anxiety, uh, mm -hmm. even, you know, um, can you talk about that piece or that that sort of sentiment? Sure. Yeah, I think it's I think it's very easy to be afraid of ceasing to grieve, mm. um, which isn't because anybody wants to be unhappy or to yearn for something you'll never have again, um, or, or to spend their spend their life, you know, tearing their hair and, and rending their clothes and um, and feeling so bereft. Nobody wants that. But I think that grief often feels like a way of not even just honoring, but inhabiting a connection that is otherwise severed. Mm. You know, I think it feels like the last thing we still have that links us to whoever it is that we lost. Um, and it's, it's active and present and dynamic in the way that like, you know, having your dad's, you know, old wallet or having your partner's, you know, beloved, you know, gray hoodie, or, you know, having your child, your child, God forbid, your child's, you know, baseball gloves and the whole content of their room. Like it, those things are static and they can't change, but the grief is, is with you and inside of you and you carry it around. And I, I think it can feel like the relationship, you know, it's, 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 it's what you have left. Yeah. And so it seems a little terrifying to imagine that someday you won't even have that, you know, and, and it feels, I think some people can experience it as um, 
a failure, speaking of empathy, a, a kind of failure of empathy. Like if that were person were here, they would be like, what have you already forgotten about me? Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't matter so much to you. Um, or, or it can feel more public facing, like it somehow feels urgent to remind the world, like, no, I was, I, this person mattered to me and I was close to them and I loved them and they're gone. And I can't, I can't bear for that not to be visible and on everybody's minds, you know, all the time, not just mine. I, I think it can, it can feel very, very hard to let go of, of the identity of bereft. Mm. Um, and I think that's very natural. Um, and I also think it's, um, it does no one any good, you know, um, uh, which isn't to say hurry up and get over it at all. Like grief has a long and um, I don't want to say natural course because it's it's so variable for everyone. And of course, um, can be shortened or extended by circumstance in, in countless ways, but it certainly has a course to run. Um, and I think, you know, we do very ill to try to... Um, forestall it or shorten it Mm. Uh, but by the same token we do very ill to try to lengthen it or or will it back into being or or force it into the same strength and presence it had at some earlier time it's um it does not honor the dead it does not keep them alive it does not keep them connected to you um in fact all it really does is keep them very insistently and and newly dead (laughs) which is Mm. which is not a place uh in which anyone's memory can can truly be honored or lived into interesting yeah so recently i saw that the new dsm 5 the di- the mental health you know manual said something along the lines of like grief having a timeline and there was a lot of actually uh, pushback uh, and, and lashing back uh, from sort of the, the grief community at large saying that like, no, that's actually not true. Like maybe you're simplifying something that's very complicated and complicated. And as you said, variable for so many. Um, but what is interesting about that too, is like, I, I had this conversation with Rabbi Steve Leader who wrote this beautiful book called The Beauty of What Remains, which I highly recommend. And he said, after losing his his father, he said, it won't, like, prior to losing his father, he said, like, oh, it will, I'm, I'm forgetting what he said, but after losing his father, he said, it, it won't, uh, it's not that it will always hurt, it's just that it won't hurt so bad for so long or something along those lines right like it will (laughs) hurt but it will be less painful over time right Mm -hmm. and maybe that's a piece of the i mean the reality is too that we're human right and i uh we only have so much in our we can contain in our brains and remember too right like you're scientifically minded like I, i i lost my um best friend scooby my dog my black labrador last year in april it's coming up on a year and i still see him i still will like you know we have a couple of new rescues and i like will call his name accidentally you know so things like that will happen but it's slowly right it's slowly dissipating they're not there anymore you know they're not in my life day to day so it's it's sort of natural to um allow that to take its course and whatever that looks like. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I certainly don't think it looks like some, you know, prescribed amount of time via some prescribed number of steps um, in the way that 
grief literature can sometimes suggest, and certainly, you know, the the mandate and mission of the DSM uh, is is different, I think, from the mandate and the mission of um, actual mental health professionals. <laughs> um, in that it's you know it's it's a diagnostic manual, but of course it's also primarily a, let's be honest an instrument of insurance companies, and it's, you know meant in part to handle and resolve questions of of what's billable when and what isn't. Um, so one ought to treat it uh, with a serious quantity of salt. Um, but I, but yeah, I mean I, I just yeah. think everyone even even if such a thing, um, and I don't mean to discredit everyone involved. A lot of very compassionate people are trying to. Um, be compassionate mental health care providers uh, yeah. at every level of, of that industry. But, you know, even if such a thing could be established in, in broad stroke, it would, of course, be wildly variable person to person. You know, we are all grieving different people. We are all different people doing the grieving. We are all doing it under different circumstances. We are grieving people who died in very, very different ways. Um, you know, I'm at great pains in this book to describe my father's death as not a tragedy right. um, because it isn't at all. You know, my father died uh, in, in his seventies surrounded by people he loved um, and after a long and, and rich and remarkable life. Uh, and, and I think, um, you know, relatively at peace and relatively not in pain. So, you know, what we would, what we would think of as a good death insofar as you could get close to such a thing. I mean, I wish he'd been 104, not 74, but by and large, you know, good death. And, yeah. and yet, of course I found it, um, despite not being tragic, very, very sad. That was what was interesting to me about it in some ways. You know, this is as close as you could get to a kind of optimal circumstances. And you know what? It still sucks. And that's really interesting, right? Those are the terms of our existence. And mm -hmm. somehow we have to contend with, even if it's not worse, um, it's it's bad. And, and how do we live with this kind of inevitability of loss? But the reason I, I go to such lengths to um, describe it as not tragic and, you know, as this kind of approximation of a good death is that, of course, people suffer losses uh, vastly harder and, and um, less just and more painful than that every hour of every day. Yeah. So the notion that we could somehow impose a reasonable timeline on this, uh, is, it just strikes me as on the face of it absurd mm -hmm. and unfair to, to people who are grieving. Yeah, yeah. And that last piece is important too. And you say something about this in the book in regards to by the simple fact that, you know, your father died a not tragic death and someone over here, you know, had experienced some, you know, I don't know, uh, far more tragic quote unquote death, you know, doesn't take away from the fact that you experience loss and it does suck, right? Like that's a, sort of human comparison thing we do a game we play that's not very useful <laughs> very not useful yes I, yeah. I completely agree um not very useful in fact very not useful i um yeah i that's exactly right you know in in establishing that my father's death was not a tragedy i what i'm not trying to do is get involved in the comparative suffering game um because that's a real fool's errand you know yeah um there is always someone uh, luckier than you, more fortunate than you, and, and there is always someone less fortunate than you. And although I do believe it's it's really important to be mindful of that, um, mm -hmm. especially and specifically to be mindful of those less fortunate or, or suffering worse, um, I believe that because I believe it's an act of compassion to recognize that, and because I do think um, that you know some of the time for some of us it can be helpful, right, and restorative to to reflect on. <laughs> Uh, bluntly put, all the suffering we're not experiencing, you know, yeah. uh, all the ways we are incredibly 
fortunate. Um, so I, it's not that I don't think that's important, but um, it becomes the opposite. It becomes not at all helpful or illuminating when it's um, rendered sort of um, prescriptively like, well, you know, you shouldn't feel X because, you know, so many people have it worse or, yeah. you know, some, some notion that your suffering doesn't count. Um, your pain doesn't count. Your loss doesn't count simply because we could pony up one that by some metric seems, you know, quote, worse. Well, so what, you know, I mean, pain is pain. Um, yeah. and, and the point is not to be reminded constantly that there's more of it. The point is to, to, to join in sorrow over the existence of it and, and try to help us all feel better. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not to compare and it's to recognize that uh, my pain is uh, my pain and your pain is your pain and they're both valid and, 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 and uh, those have it better and those have it worse. And, and being mindful of that can bring a more compassionate, empathetic lens uh, with which we, you know, view the world. You said something in the book that uh, another one of those uh, Capote lines that that sort of uh, struck me, which is, uh, each of us is obliged to dispel the darkness in the world, uh, which I believe to be true for me. What does that mean for you? No, I, it's as close as I have to a You've heard me be a not very prescriptive person on this uh, in this conversation. It's it's the closest thing I have to a, a, a prescription, at least about how to live my own life. Although I mm. do think um, if you asked me to come up with a, if I were in the business of providing commandments, which I'm very glad I'm not, uh, it, it would it would be on the list. Um, you know, I think that um, the world is full of suffering. You know, our own and and that of other people, uh, and and full of pain and full of ignorance um and and some of the some of the suffering is inevitable you know that's what i'm getting at with this problem of the good death you know mm. even even under the best of circumstances um we lose what's very precious to us and, and we feel pain physical emotional um mental and i guess my feeling is the very structure of life provides us with enough of that kind of pain uh that, that we should never pile on right but of mm. course Regrettably, that's what humans do, right? We inflict all kinds of pain and suffering on each other uh, unnecessarily and, and quite horribly. Um, and I don't know what we are doing here unless it is to try to make someone's life a little better and a little easier. Um, and that that is kind of my only moral guidance. Um, it's not enough. The reason The reason life is complicated is, you know, there are always very complicated moral situations where it's unclear, you know, how what would alleviate pain the best or, or you know, which side of a, of a problem you should be on. But but as a broad guide, guideline, yes, my feeling is um, we are here to make each other's lives easier and kinder and richer and, and more gentle, not impoverished or, mm. uh, or, or painful. Mm. And what does that look like for you? Like, in terms of how you do it. I mean, obviously you, you do it by writing beautiful memoirs and you, the gift of, of writing, but is there, are there other sort of day-to-day -day things that you like to do to sort of in, in the, in the realm of trying to dispel the darkness? 
Sure. I mean, the blunt answer to that is I do wildly too little. You know, um, I don't kid myself that writing is sufficient. Uh, uh, on a good day, I believe it's a contribution, you know, uh, and, and not just writing things like this. I actually do think, um, you know, this is this book is a departure for me. I don't normally write about my own life. Um, and I, um, I do believe that in my normal capacity as a reporter, as a journalist, um, there are ways to inhabit that job that feel moral to me and that feel like they um, hopefully help people's lives uh, and, and do dispel ignorance or address issues. Um, but again, I don't flatter myself that I'm either very good at that or that, or that it's enough. Um, uh, on a very basic level, I tithe. I am not a religious person, but um, but I believe that, um, you know, we're always talking about not throwing money at the problem. Uh, my God, I wish we would all throw more money at more problems. Like I do. I just think like the truth is tragically, uh, we live in an era of radical inequality. Um, there are a lot of problems, especially just simply in the lives of our fellow human beings that would be enormously alleviated by money. Um, and, yeah. and so I make a habit of, of giving uh, a lot of mine away. Um, I shouldn't say a lot. I should doubtless give more of it away, but I do give 10% of it away on, uh, at a, on a conservative year. Um, and, you know, again, I'm mindful it's not enough. It's not enough both because it's not enough of my money um, and because it's never enough uh, to just um, throw money at a problem. Although, as I said, I believe it to be a great start. Um, but, you know, I uh, it's so funny. I'm, I'm really mindful of the for me, the combination of the pandemic uh, and and new parenthood has felt morally very tricky because it has removed me from community in all mm. kinds of ways. Um, you know, I I believe in uh, I believe in volunteering, but in a deeper sense than that, I believe in being a part of your community. You know, being being among the people who will respond in the face of need, whether it's steady and constant need or sudden and urgent need. You just, you know, you show up, you do whatever it is, you bring the meal, you build the house, you whatever. Yeah. Um, and it's, it has been complicated um, in these last couple of years. I, I think one of the saddest tolls of the pandemic for me was that we had to regard one another as a danger. Mm. Uh, and especially, you know, being, you know, my partner was pregnant during the pandemic. Our baby was born during the pregnant pandemic actually other people were kind of a danger and worst of all in the early period of the pandemic um a, a quite uncertain danger you know no mm -hmm. one had much information at the time yeah. um and all that's just to say um i i regret the ways that it um it separated us from community because i do think you know the other the other part of dispelling the darkness is uh just you know fostering community showing up for people being being active um in your in your town, in your community, in your schools, uh, in, in your place of worship, whatever it may be for you, or all of the above. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It's, it is, I feel, and I wonder if you can relate, I, I always feel a little bit overwhelmed by it all. And I don't, I don't think I, I don't think I want to rid myself of that feeling of overwhelm because that means I am uh, sort of leaning into some discomfort and trying to do more and trying to um, 
be more active in my community or do more activism or whatever it may look like, right? So, but I also need to be aware as as a sensitive person that I can't I, I can't afford and the world can't afford to have us shut down either, right? Mm-hmm. Do you yeah, feel that? I yeah. mean, for sure, you know, and I think that, um, yes, I think that impulse to shut down is simultaneously very understandable and very dangerous. Um, mm-hmm. But I also think, you know, overwhelmed is such an interesting word um, because we're overwhelmed in good ways too, you know, and um, I, I think that's important to remember because it's um, it's kind of the reward for staying open uh, in the ways that overwhelm us with the world's need, you know, mm. and the world's suffering and, and what can sometimes feel like just the cruelty and, and illogic of it. Um, but, you know, we're overwhelmed uh, sometimes just by the night sky, you know, we're overwhelmed <laughs> by, by a, a, you know, a baby just reaching up for you. Uh, we're, we're overwhelmed by the absolute wonder of of being here and getting to witness it all and getting to exist so i think um i try to hold those things in balance you know if if you want the latter you got to take the former that's the price of the ticket yeah absolutely it's precisely why in my intro say wondrous and overwhelming pale blue dot Mm -hmm. it's it's all the things it is awe-inspiring and it's wildly bonkers and out of our control (laughs) right um yeah so um, you're a runner. Are you? Do you still run? I do. Although I'm currently, to my grave annoyance, um, suffering from an injury, so that has put oh, a real crimp in my running style. Uh, I'm but, sorry, but yes, I. Uh, it's, it's not stopping me from identifying as one because in my deep score, that's whether whether or not I'm out on a trail or the road. That's who I am. <laughs> so I I also run and I also love to backpack into the you know into the wilderness. And for me, it stems from this sort of childhood uh, wonder of escape and sort of mm-hmm. finding new things in the woods and, and sort of exploring and, and embodying Calvin and Hobbes and, you know, that kind of thing into the woods. And like, <laughs> there's something so magical about it that I think for some, it, it can bring anxiety and it can bring uh, fear, right? Um, tell me a little bit about your experience in sort of uh, the the adventure and wondrous sort of exploration you do as a runner, as a as a hiker. It's interesting about fear. Um, I don't feel that, and probably should. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, uh, I mean, I guess that's not quite true. Every once in a while, I've had a moment of real fear in the wilderness. Um, typically, in in moments when I think I might be lost. Um, mm. Uh, speaking of lost and found, but no, you know, I mean, you just heard me talk about being overwhelmed, looking up at the, the night sky full of stars. I find the natural world just remarkable and remarkable at every scale, you know, a, a fern in front of you on the trail and, and that entire night sky. And um, there's no amount of contemplating it that would be too much for me uh, or, or even enough for me. Uh, so I'm always, uh, I'm always happy when I have an excuse to be out in it, whether that's, you know, a 30 minute run I'm squeezing in on a day or, you know, off deep somewhere in the mountains. Um, and I guess it does, um, you know, what I love about it, uh, it, it connects me for sure to that sense of awe um, and, and mystery and good fortune, right? The kind of, wow, like we get to see all this. This is mm. crazy, you know, yeah. <laughs> this is astonishing. Um, and 
at the same time, you know, I like how, so that's the sort of cosmic scale of it at the human scale of it. I just like how um, it sort of orients me in my own body. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I, um, it's not that I stop thinking, um, but I think different kinds of thoughts and I think in different ways, uh, especially when running, um, you know, for me, at least um, the runner's high is a real thing. Mm. Um, there's a kind of very meditative state I can enter into while running. I think it's I think it's enforced by the terror of spraining an ankle. Because um, to be honest, when you're out trail running, you know it's like the, the trail in front of you is like covered in leaf litter, and there's like roots and rocks and steep parts, and you know maybe ice or maybe mud. Like you just have got to focus on it. And there is a kind of uh, when, when when the front of your mind is that occupied with not spraining your ankle. Um, it's like all the thoughts rush up there and focus on this one thing. And there's this vast clearing behind them where, where mm. unexpected little things can pop up. Um, mm. So, yeah, I, I love it both for how it orients me in the cosmos and how it orients me in myself. Hmm. I love the way you, I love the way you talk. I love the way you speak. Um, I, I feel all of that. I am deeply humbled by being in nature. Um, we, I mentioned before we live we live in kind of a rural pocket of Southern California and, and above us, above me now are these, this one over here is a 150 year old Oak tree. Mm. It's just sort of like, uh, it's, it reaches its hand like out over our house. And it's so whenever I'm feeling a little bit, um, untethered or anxious, I, I look up at that tree and it just, it's everything to me. And it, it I, mm. On, on on that sort of cosmic level that you talk about, it is it's weird that it does that, right? It it, it is weird that it does that, um, that it sort of brings that feeling into me. But it but it does, and it, it always has. Um, and it, it you know one of the few things I am grateful for in my childhood is that camping was the vacation. We went camping, mm. you know, we went into the woods. Um, uh, and that was, uh, I feel like that was pretty special and I, I hold that in my heart to be pretty mm -hmm. special. Yeah. Yeah. What a gift from your family. Um, yeah. I, I love my family very much and, uh, just cherish everything about my childhood. Um, but it, it did not feature camping trips. You know, I joke <laughs> that I was kind of raised to be a disembodied bookworm. So I, uh, which, which believe me, um, has its own merits, but yeah, I came, I came to the natural world kind of late and on my own terms, but yeah, what a, what a wonderful gift to yeah. put a kid in a sleeping bag somewhere and show them the stars. Yeah. So as, as this, uh, uh, kid with the, with your nose in a book, um, what were some of the go-tos as a kid that you loved? You know, I was a voracious and completely indiscriminate reader as a child, uh, and in a wonderful way, um, my family felt no need to um, either constrain or guide my reading. I mean, I suppose my reading was guided in certain ways in that uh, my dad in particular, you know, uh, read to us and delighted in doing mm -hmm. so, and, mm -hmm. um, you know, would just open the Norton Anthology and read to us. He loved poetry. You know, he took us to see uh, Shakespeare's plays very young. Um, so, so there was certainly, there was a sense of the kinds of things he cherished and why, um, and, and my mom too. Um, but, you know, there was this kind of respect for our minds that I really admire. You know, my mm. parents kind of let me loose in the library. Um, they were not very material people, but they never balked when I asked to buy a book, uh, if, if they took me to a bookstore. Um, 
So, you know, I read a lot of junk, um, which frankly, I think is kind of fine. Um, and I read a lot of non-junk, <laughs> uh, some of it, you know, way too sophisticated for me to understand at the time, but, but that's the beauty of it. You know, you read um, Jane Austen or Robert Frost and, and you have a very kid level engagement with it. I choose those two authors in particular, because actually in a wonderful way, you can engage with them as a kid and they reward that. And then they, they deepen and deepen uh, as you mm. grow up kind of alongside them. Um, yeah. But, you know, as a kid, I mean, my gosh, I fell hard and early under the spell of T.H. White. Um, I read The Once and Future King. Speaking of too young, I mean, my gosh, I read The Once and Future King in elementary school, um, the whole thing, not just the, um, the, the the first third that's, you know, the boy, Arthur and Merlin and, and, and the part that's, you know, often kind of rendered in, in childlike ways in popular culture, um, the sort of sword in the stone part. Um, yeah. I read the whole thing and, and then I didn't read it again until... Um, Quite recently, actually, until I started my job at The New Yorker, uh, I reread it for um, a beautiful memoir. I was reviewing Helen McDonald's H's for Hawk, uh, which mm. is partly about T.H. White, interestingly. And I read it and I thought, man, I mean, children's minds are so weird. I cannot believe that I read this as a child. And I furthermore cannot believe I loved this as a child um, or understood it as a child. Um, it's a beautiful book. It's a perfect epic, you know, um, comedy, romance, tragedy. It, it really does all three in three acts very beautifully. Um but anyway, that's all to say, I kind of went hard in the direction of like, you know, Arthur and Arthur knockoffs and, and fantasy land as a kid. Um, okay. And that stuff was formative to me. Uh, and, it, but, but more to the point, I think I just, I just read, I was always reading something. Um, and uh, I think probably partly as a result, I had a sense from very young of, boy, what an amazing thing to to get to do. And I want to do this thing. As it turns out, I was a little bit wrong. I'm hopelessly bad at fiction. As a kid, I thought I'd write fiction because kids <laughs> mostly read fiction. Um, but it's certainly, um, you know, it was it was a very fun world to live in. And I think ultimately very good for my mind. Well, reading is, is uh, empathy, right? <laughs> Stories, movies are empathy machines. As Roger Ebert said, stories are the same. Books are the same, right? It allows us to to see ourselves in the characters, you know, it's a sure. beautiful exercise. Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I have fond memories of, of wandering, uh, the public library as a kid and, and mother saying, uh, you get five books, you can check out five books today. Right. And just, you know, <laughs> finding the five, you know, it felt very special. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So. Speaking of finding, right. Yeah. It's a wonderful kind of treasure hunt. You go off through the yeah, library. Absolutely. Build your stack. and right. Yeah. <laughs> So the last thing I want to talk about, Catherine, is so I reread because I, I I think I read it when it came out the your article in the Atlantic, the one you uh, about the big one. <clears throat> oh, the New Yorker. Gotcha. Sorry. The New Yorker. Sorry, sorry. Mm -hmm. The New Yorker. That's good. Um, oh, how dare I mention the Atlantic? <laughs> wow. What a I, well, I had a moment of like, if I written, for, you know, you do at various points in your life freelance a lot, and I thought, have I written for the Atlantic? <laughs> possible i'm you know i joke now that i um used to have a memory and now i have a child so it's, it's possible i wrote for the atlantic but yeah well i have the memory of a goldfish so um <laughs> you know we're on that level together uh so just a uh, amazing piece of writing and and like such a uh uh, uh overwhelmingly um 
richly detailed scientific thing that's happening in the world um, uh, and and trying to relate such a thing or trying to describe it on such a human level to relate to to help people understand that like this thing is serious a- after rereading it it left me feeling anxious it certainly left me feeling like okay I have this information what do I do with it now I don't know um, how are you feeling about it now an interesting question. Well, you know, in some ways, um, I mean, look, as a um, as a piece of writing, um, it was really, it was just beginning to end incredibly interesting for me. Um, you know, I just said I, I'm not normally a memoirist. I, I normally work as a reporter and, um, or as an, or as a critic, um, actually more often as a critic. So it was, it's, um, it's wonderful to work as a reporter, you know, the world gives you a lot of information yeah. and um, it's your job to kind of sort through it and, and put it together in a way that's meaningful for readers. And in the case of that piece, you know, per our earlier discussion about how do you, how do you dispel the darkness? Um, it actually did quite plainly feel like a very urgent subject. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, I thought, well, you know, mm. maybe getting some attention for this story will make some kind of difference. Um, and, you know, as as with these things, um, on the good side, um, I think it did. Um, on the bad side, it's never enough. Um, so, you know, from my perspective, you write a piece like We did and, and bolt their homes to their foundations, you know, that that could be some kid's life, you know, which means, of course, their family's life, you know, uh, and, and their, their future happiness. Um, I, in the case of that, um, you know, that article made a made a splash uh, for reasons that go far beyond me and don't really have anything to do with its caliber, me as a writer, but I'm grateful that it happened. And um there were some really positive outcomes, um, you know, funding for an earthquake early warning system for the Northwest, finally. Um, but but right. to my mind, the most positive outcome of all, um, and I certainly cannot, uh, I, I don't want to take any more than the tiniest morsel of credit for this, but there's a... Um, there's a school system uh, in that piece. Uh, they, they show up at the very end. Yeah. It's in the town of Seaside, Oregon, where um, truly the elementary schools were were real death traps. I mean, they were in the tsunami inundation zone, and there was literally no plan to get out. They, they, you couldn't get a school full of elementary school kids out of them between the time when mm-hmm. an earthquake happened and, and the tsunami followed. Um, and for decades, the superintendent of that school system had been trying to raise the funds to uh, to move those schools. And, you know, election cycle after election cycle, the bond measure wow. failed. Uh, and finally, in the election cycle after that article came out, it passed. Uh, and in fact, they, they're building an enormous new campus uh, way up in the hills. All the schools, elementary, middle and high, will all be um, out of the out of the reach of the tsunami. Um, and so again, you know, was that me? No, it was an incredibly dogged, hardworking superintendent and, and a lot of other people in that uh, in that school system uh, trying fiercely to protect their kids uh, in the same way that, you know, was it me beating the drum about that story? I mean, long before I got there, a bunch of regional reporters had, had tried their hearts out to get the word out about it. Um, so it's always it's always a lot of people and it's always a tipping point. But I do feel like um, mm. I feel like some real 
palpable material good came of that, which quite frankly, as a journalist, you barely ever get to say. So, um, so I'm pleased about that. Um, you know, I don't know. It's so funny. I'm actually just in, in a couple of weeks, I'm heading out to the Northwest uh, for, for this book tour. I've got some live yeah, in-person yeah. events uh, in, in Eugene and Portland and Seattle. And uh, it's interesting, you know, I, I, um, I am known there. I'm both better known there and known in a different way than I probably am in the whole rest of the country. So, you know, check, check in with me in a month. I might have different feelings about, about how that piece has aged. Uh, but, um, but overall, I feel like it, um, it did function as a kind of wake up call. And as I said, even if, you know, if it saves literally one life, it's more than I can say for most of the things I write. Yeah, no, that's fair. Um, well, I'll, everyone listening, I, I think you should read it. Uh, especially those, on the you know in the pacific northwest area for sure uh so i'll link it in the show notes okay Catherine, let's talk about empathy heroes this is how we kind of wrap up the show uh my guest and i talk about someone in our lives who is empathetic compassionate feely whatever um someone who is an empathy hero uh i will go first to give you a moment to reflect on your empathy hero my empathy hero this week is uh the actor, writer, uh, all-around geek, uh, Will Wheaton. Uh, Will is someone I just had on the show. Um, actually, as of this recording, his episode came out yesterday, and I it it took. I, I originally, Catherine, I originally reached out to his people in January of 2019, and then you know, more than three years later, we we made it happen. And he wrote this book called Still Just a Geek, which is a uh, an sort of, uh, he wrote a book in 2004 called Just a Geek. And this new book is a reflection on that book through annotation. And and it's, I called it the inception of inner child work because it's, it's like he went through it and sort of compassionately reflected on who he was then in a way that's like really vulnerable and special. Um, and I really connected with cause he, he experienced a great deal of childhood trauma and, and held a lot of shame around it. Um, and felt like he acted out, you know, as a teenager on sets and whatnot. Anyways, it's a really stunning book and a deeply empathetic book and, um, just grateful for it and will. So Will Wheaton is my empathy hero this week. How about you? Huh. Um, well, that's beautiful, but I didn't need even uh, one second to answer that question. Um, <laughs> for sure, my answer is my mother. Um, mm. You know, the, this book, Lost and Found, uh, is um, is primarily about my father and my partner, two incredible people uh, who I love and I loved getting to write about. Um, but in the case of my father, you know, um, I was writing about him, of course, because I, I was writing about his death and my grief over his loss. And it's it's an unfortunate thing we do, you know. We um, we eulogize the dead, but we sometimes forget to praise the living. <laughs> so, you know, my mother takes a kind of uh, a backseat in this book in a certain sense, which she would be very comfortable with. Uh, and, and of course, she she read the book at every stage and has been a wonderful champion of it. But, um, you know, my father um, was this big, gregarious, brilliant man um, who would tell you without hesitating that the best thing that ever happened to him was marrying my mom. And, and mm. quite adorably, he just always felt she was the most beautiful woman in every room and the greatest catch of his life. Uh, and, uh, and he was, he was right. You know, they were a wonderful pair. And, 
Uh, my mom, um, who largely goes unsung in the book, except for a few small and I, I hope very loving cameos. Um, my mom actually is kind of an empathy genius. You know, she is just um, unfailingly compassionate um, and without being a Pollyanna looks for the best in people and brings out the best in people. Um, and is also just very emotionally astute. You know, she can see through to the heart of, of why a thing is happening. Like you might see the surface irritation, you know, or the anger or the frustration um, or the disappearing act or whatever it may be. And, mm -hmm. and, and she sees the kind of deep emotional truth and, and why someone is acting the way they are um, mm -hmm. and therefore how, how best to react. Um, so yeah, my, my mom is a genius that way. And um, my sister really inherited that. Uh, she's truly like my mother, one of the wisest and most compassionate and patient people I know. And I'm just boundlessly grateful to and in awe of both of them. Mm, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Well, Catherine, um, where can the listeners out there connect with you? Obviously, order your book, um, etc. Uh, well, I can be tracked down pretty easily through uh, a website, um, which is just my full name, Catherine Schultz. Um, mildly impossible to spell, but if you throw in the very easy to spell New Yorker, uh, it, it will turn me up or the name of the book, Lost and Found, uh, which is pretty straightforward. Um, and yeah, the book, um, you can get it absolutely anywhere, but I really encourage you, uh, if, if you want to read it, and I hope you do, to track it down at your local independent bookstore, um, which makes careers like mine possible and uh, makes communities like the ones I think we all love living in uh, possible and, and thriving. So um, yes, I, I would love it if you would pick up a copy of the book at, at whichever indie you like best. Yeah. And listeners, if you don't have an independent bookstore near you, bookshop.org is a great resource that uh, they support local local bookshops that I love. And so I'll make sure to include uh, a link to uh, the book in the show notes. And uh, yeah, Catherine, thank you so much for doing this. I, I felt a little wandering and wayward in my words. Um, so apologies for that. But I, I really appreciate you and just cherish your book. I, I think it's Wonderful. Thank you. Well, that's very kind of you. To my mind, wandering conversations are some of the best that there are. Uh, and, and this has been absolutely my pleasure. So thank you so much. You're very welcome. And to you listeners, as I always say, I'm here, you're here, we're here together on this wayward, overwhelming, awe-inspiring, pale blue dot. We have each other. It's you, me, empathy. Oh.